Tom McGuane's complete life would have only been lived by an extraordinary person that dreamt without barricades, rules, and pursued a limitless sense of freedom and wonder that he did. I find Tom McGuane to be one of the most interesting and compelling people to know and understand. At this stage, I just wish I was a professional interviewer, but here's my best shot. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. It's amazing to see the trajectory of our lives. Yeah. You know, how the how it flows like a river. And yeah. sometimes it gets a little bit rough. Mm -hmm. um, when you got out of Key West, how did you evolve from being that kind of a madman, if you will, with all of your buddies? And everybody, everybody got out of there. You yeah. know, you were there for a short period of time, and everybody ran out and became tremendously successful. Mm -hmm. um, I would, I would ask you, like that transition was there? Like all of a sudden, you knew I got, I got, I got to change this. I got to get off this train. I had to get off the rock for sure because I remember. And you ran back to Livingston. Yeah, I remember driving out of town. I think, and I can't remember what road it is. Roosevelt or anyway one of the ones that kind of leads you out up the keys and it was like late in the year kind of fished till the bitter end nobody left in town it's buggy and hot and awful and I remember, remember driving out and saying, saying to myself this is really really a depressing town and uh, it was a momentary feeling I guess or, but it's a town I had come to that conclusion uh, it, that was your closure. Yeah, yeah, and you know you'd seen a lot of people uh, not survive. You know, right? Uh, and I can't remember when the AIDS thing happened, uh, but we also had. It was know, towards the end of the '60s, I think it was, when everybody started to get a grip that you're you're dancing with the devil. Yeah, yeah, and then then the AIDS thing came along. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember I went back down to Key West, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and there was a an AIDS memorial online. And I thought, I wonder if I knew any of these guys. This was long, by that time, it had been a long time ago. And 
I started scrolling through it and I just ran into all these names of guys I knew, painters and poets and artists and, you know, great guys. Right, sure. They just got unlucky. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I used to go to dinner with Tennessee Williams, who was one of the, sure. one of the, uh, literary ancients, you know, that you felt lucky to know or to be around. Uh, uh, and then, uh, Jamie Kirkwood, who wrote, I'm trying to remember the guy that wrote um, a great, great movie about New York hustler life. I'll think of it in a minute, senior moment. But uh, so it was an interesting, especially in the first five or six or seven or eight years when there was an established kind of literary presence there. Of course, Hemingway is gone. Right. But people like Truman Capote had come through and Tennessee Williams would come through. And these were all wonderful writers. Right. You know. I I remember we took Capote out dancing to some rock and roll joint. He was the most unbelievable dancer. He, he he's like a black guy concealed in a little tiny white body. <laughs> and we went back and had breakfast the next day at my house and I said, Truman, I can't believe what a great dancer you are. He went, yes, I really make that floor come to life. <laughs> <laughs> He's very funny and a great writer, you know. Yeah. So. Did, um, did Tennessee Williams ever mentor you in any way, influence you in any way? What kind of conversations were you having with these guys? Well, the first time that I went there, he invited me to come to dinner. He loved uh, 92 in the Shade. And he said, I can't believe you haven't lived here all your life. He said, that's just the most inside Key West book I've ever read. And and uh, he, so we, we talked about that, you know, at length. And then sometimes... I, couple times I went there to dinner and he was just fried. I remember I remember one time he had uh Killing Me Softly, what was it? Roberta Flack. Right. Playing on this record player and going over and over again. You're trying to stuck on the same Killing track. Me softly. Pretty soon he's doing one of these jobs. Plop. It's time to go. <laughs> Let's talk about the chart room. Well that was kind of like um that was like um the 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 bar central for all the great writers. Yeah, it came to be. I mean, when I first lived there, it didn't exist. Uh, and then... Uh, and Tom Corcoran mentioned that name earlier. Yeah. He was the bartender. Yep. Was he kind of like the guy who was the go-to common connection to the chart room and to Key West? Because he was, you know, well, the I, taco peddler when he was a younger guy on yeah, a bicycle. Yeah, that's what I, I first remembered. He'd just gotten out of the Navy. He was a Navy officer. Right. And uh, um, he had a taco, walked through the streets, taco deal. I mean, I think he just fell in love with life. It was completely different than the life he'd had. You know, he grew up in the Midwest. He joined the Navy. Sure. He was on a battleship or something. In fact, when we sailed to Cuba, Laurie and I, he was our navigator. We did a night passage in a gale and uh, got knocked down in the middle of the Gulf Stream oh, at 3 o'clock in the morning. How scary is that? Yeah, it was pretty scary. We got to Veradero and it's a big breaking wave in the mouth of the entrance and the Cubans and the gunboats are waving us ashore. And we got up in the top of the wave. Two thirds of the boat was airborne. Right. And we just surfed into the inner harbor. It was, but Corcoran was the navigator on that right. trip. Right. Um, 
we got knocked down. We were trying to carry a chute too long. And uh, we had the big boarding wave, you know, these big gray beards with the tops blowing off. And the big boarding wave came in. And the, I was at the helm and it just took the stern away. And the chute went in the water. And the boat was lying on its side with a spreader out. And there's big black waves going by in trains. And um, I opened the cabin door to see how Lori was doing. She was trying to make some food before this happened. There were boiled potatoes all around the bottom of the of the cabin. And Lori goes, that's it, sport. That <laughs> <laughs> was it. The end of the big cruising days. Oh, God. Um but the chart room, that, did that inspire a lot of your writing and well, others as well? Because that's where all the great conversations were yeah, taking place. Yeah. Uh, the camaraderie was really glued uh, right. in, in that room. It was great until the cocaine days because then it became uh, it became a hangout for drug coke, people, coke people, yeah, up with guns. You know, before that, as famously been said, you know, it was marijuana sailboats and uh, acoustic guitars that was the world and then after that it was uh felonious types there were guns last time i was in the chart room i was with donnie King kincaid who's a photographer for the atosha wreck and he came in from work he had his cameras all over him and uh we sat up at the bar and there were these uh cuban Coke dealers all sitting around a table smoking cigars. And uh, they said um, to Don, he said, hey, you with the camera, get out of here. So I said, I said, Don, just ignore him. Just stay where you are. And this one guy, and I, I've seen him since then. One guy got up and the other guy said to I said, get the guy that just said that and gouge his eyes out. And... Uh, so he came over and broke a bottle, and I said, okay, we're going. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. We'll go now. <laughs> and that was the end of the, uh, that was just, the chart It was a run. whole change of tone. Right. I mean, you know, the fire chief was in it, and uh, Manny, Manny Hernandez, I think. I mean, his mate, man, what was Manny's last name? He was kind of the kingpin. But, he, you know, he'd gone to University of Florida. He was at ATO, and he came back, and wife was a school teacher and then he was the kingpin buyer for the coke trade um, a lot of people were getting uh people were getting killed you know right so, it was time to time to head to montana well it was just a and it, that came and went too like everything yeah um let's talk a little bit about montana okay um and fishing you know uh we spoke a little bit about about fishing in, in the in the keys but um fishing means to me a couple of different things depending on what i'm fishing for and now that i'm closing in on 70 um it's changed it's evolved um i think for me if you don't mind me going first because no i love um you would. I think fishing centers me. At a young age, I was too hyper to be uh, centered. Yeah. Uh, I was chasing the numbers. I got to the keys. I was trying to chase the numbers in, in, in the biggest chasing tournament wins. 
But overall, I think in the West, it's not big fish. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not hunting, even though we do hunt. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're chasing and looking at 120 to 150, pounds, you know, bigger tarpon, 120s to 170s, you're hunting. Mm-hmm. So the attention paid is much more intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're on guard. You might only have a couple shots a day. Um, and now, having done 35 years of tarpon fishing, chasing tournaments, once I started, once I hit that, that point of like, this is no longer as much fun as it used to be, I'd already won a bunch of things. And I wasn't appreciating the sunrises mm-hmm. and the gentle breezes and just the beauty of the ocean and the wort and the and the birds passing by. It was all about the fire, all about catching and winning and 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 the intense hunt. Now it's more watching my son and when I'm in the West, I'll go to the river and just kind of be centered, wait mm-hmm. for a hatch, smoke a cigar, kind of just be present. Mm-hmm. And enjoy the sounds of the river, you mm-hmm. know. And when I was younger, I never saw the things I see now. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me now, you know, being in the West, um, Aspen has changed very dramatically over the last number of years. Uh, as I mentioned to you just recently, I was in New York for a big Bonefish Tarpon Trust fundraiser, and I had all this anxiety being in the city. Mm-hmm. Um and then driving here, I love driving across Wyoming because of the expanse of Wyoming. And you see all the, yeah. the antelope out there and the bigness of it. And I experienced road rage in the middle of Wyoming coming here. You, you had road rage? Two, two, two days ago, I go to pass this vehicle in front of me, and he accelerated. He wouldn't let me pass him. I mean, the speed limit in Wyoming has got to be 90, right? So he's going along at maybe 78 or so, and I was rolling. I had to get here. So he accelerated, and I didn't know what his game was. Like, he wanted to, like, drag race me or what. So I just tucked in behind him and just, you know, paid my dues and let the, you know. And everybody, if you read the Billings Gazette, you realize everybody in every other car has got a gun. It's, it's, uh, so for me, I don't want to be around people anymore. And where you live here in Montana is just such a sanctuary. Yeah. And and fishing, I think, is it has brought me back to the man I've always been, but to a, a man that is slowing down and understanding what centered is. Yeah. Because I'm not distracted by a lot of different things. Yeah. Which we both have have been. Um, and it's not about anything other than just being present. Interesting. I floated the the Roaring Fork recently. And I told my buddy, um, I said, look, I really don't want to catch a fish today. And he looked at me and goes, well, what are you talking about? I said, I just want to watch him bite my bug. Yeah. If I catch a fish, I, I feel now I'm, I'm taking him out of, his, out of his holding pattern, out of his, oh, out of his space. I, know. I don't want to hold the fish. I don't want to take a hook out of him. I don't want to bother him. Yeah. And if, if you're rafting and floating... You catch a fish, and his new home is half a mile down river. Oh, I didn't think of that one. That even makes it worse. Right? You yeah. just relocated his house. Yeah. And so we floated, and we must have had 100 strikes. Just watch them bite the bug. And mm-hmm. that's what, what it was all about that day. 
Yeah. Accidentally, I caught, I think, four. Right. I felt bad for those four fish. Yeah, I, I'm having the same problem. So what does fishing mean to you? Well, I, I just have to concur with what you just said. I mean, one of the things, <laughs> you know, steel, I don't know if you've ever done any steelhead fishing. Briefly. Yeah. Anyway, it's slow. Yes. And, um, uh, you know, if you catch a fish a day, you're having a great time. Right. My neighbor, my cracker neighbor who I was telling you about, he's not really a cracker. He's a great guy, but he's he's got this fly fishing bug, so he went steelhead fishing last year and he said geez he said you know i fish all day long catch two or three steelhead i'm not going to do that again <laughs> i thought those are great days. days yes i know but i remember one time i was uh fishing on the kispiox river and it been okay it was pretty good fishing actually and these two canadian hippie steelheaders you know come down they get their uh you know just do it hats or uh uh, in little fanny packs and their spay rods and they came down along the river and they said, do you want to smoke some dope? And I said, uh, no thanks, I'm fine. And they said, how can you even consider steelhead fishing without smoking dope? <laughs> this is one of the most boring fishing in the world. <laughs> and so, so uh, but... Uh, how do you steelhead fish? I mean, and 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 deal with the length of time between bites and catching fish. Where does your mind go? Well, it's such a spiritual kind of fishing. And uh, when I first got down to the Keys, a lot of the guys that I was down there with were all like steelheaders. And so they didn't know anything about fishing down there, but they're all great casters. Right. And uh, they were also people who could really wait. I mean, I had... Bill Shad and and um, Bob, the name had come to me. They used to go out and sit on that point at Loggerhead, from sunup to sundown, and uh, they caught a lot of tarpon. They never went anywhere. They're great casters. If they went by, they're going to probably Catch hook them. Yeah. And um, so steelheading, there's some. First of all, you're in that zone, whatever it is. You're in a big, beautiful river kind of grizzly habitat and then there's all this kind of braided stuff in front of you and you're trying to think about you know there are no rises you they don't ever tip the tip tip you off of where they are so you're kind of unbraiding that all the time and it's a kind of a cerebral kind of thing and then the the yank is unforgettable partly because it's been a long time coming and then you're in the mid swing you're mid swing you've been doing this all day long all of a sudden boom and it just electrifies you. It just absolutely <laughs> electrifies you. So it's all about the tug. It's all about the tug. But I think also spade casting and the art form of spade casting is really quite compelling. It is. And I, I was kind of lucky. I was in, in uh, Tierra del Fuego with Simon Gosworth. I think you know who Simon is. Yeah. Like. And uh, we were there for a week. And then the next week, the people who were coming in were canceled. So Frontier said, you guys can have the week if you want. And so I got the benefit of a lot of his, when I was first learning to spay cast, uh, a lot of his uh, advice and when he was the best spay caster in the world. So I really learned how to do it. And it's great when you get older. You know, yeah, it's easy. It, it doesn't take any effort at all. Um, uh, and it's 
metronomic kind of, you have to, you know, it's C-run fish. You know, it's Atlantic salmon or steelhead, and they're all this similar mentality, you know. But I really agree with you about, uh, I just read this book. It had a great passage, which if I could lay his hands on it. This guy's from Aspen. Did you ever run into him? James Salter? Yeah. I don't know him. He's He died like about a year ago, but he's the most interesting guy, and, and he ended up living kind of in a kind of rural way, and he was talking about how when you're older and you can live among animals and wildlife and you can start to get the picture that you're not the biggest thing in the world uh, because of all the reverbs you're getting from the natural world. And and we've got you know we've buried so many dogs and horses on this place you know I mean you can't take mortality very seriously if that's the world you've been living in right you know you when you take your favorite old cutting horse upside down off the front end loader you take him over there and drop yeah. him and twenty years of memories from here to Texas and Jackson Mississippi and cover him up you right. know yeah now, I told my ranching partner i said you know one of these days laurie's gonna say i didn't wake up you mind coming over with the backhoe he said no problem <laughs> it's just what people think around here it's just another disposal problem <laughs> but uh but james salter you should find uh try this book of his called casada and uh james salter was a was a fighter pilot and he went to West Point, uh, and he went to the Korean War, and he was belonged to elite unit fighter pilots called MiG hunters. That's all they did was hunt, hunt Soviet MiGs in the wow. Korean. And it was—I mean—he really gets the adrenaline down. And you've done a lot of high adrenaline things, and I've done few of them, but hunting MiGs—I can't even imagine. I mean, when you're out there scouting, they around, shoot back, huh? They shoot back, they shoot back. But you're out there. Looking around for finding ways to get in trouble, and you start to see those little tiny contrails coming up from the interior Korea. Right. You know it's MiGs, and they want to kill you. Fuck. And uh, so he flew with a, a lot of guys that were air, air aces. You know, shot down a lot of MiGs. He shot down a couple of them. But right. He, uh, so he's a great writer. I'll, I'll he's a him. great writer. That, oh, I'll tell you, he wrote a. He wrote. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, he got out. He decided he he wrote a book while he was in, under a pseudonym, when he was still a fighter pilot, and it was successful. And so he left the military, and he wrote downhill races for Redford. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. And he wrote a, a couple of other things that you would you would know. It was, it was, in this book, he tells the story of why Redford so admired Spider Savage. <laughs> He had another guy. He wanted to write, make the lead in the thing. Bradford said, "No, I, I like that guy Savage. I want to be like him in the movie." <laughs> oh, he was very, vi- you know, vibrant. Spider was outrageous. I guess he was. But he, anyway. Well, he was. He was. He was. Uh, um, he did better as a professional skier than he did as an Olympic skier. Although he did finish, I think, sixth in the slalom in 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 uh, I think it was Grenoble in '68 when Keeley won all three golds. Um, but he was dashing. He was handsome. He was electric. 
he yeah. was uh, ca- not quite Captain Berserker, but similar. Yeah. You know, all the ladies in the partying, winning races. He beat Keeley, you know, uh, one of the big events. And he dated um, Cludding Langer, and she ended yeah. up killing him. And But he had a, a life story. Like, he came from an obscure background and rose through the... Yes. Anyway, uh, uh, Redford, when I worked with Redford a lot, Redford uh, was kind of fixated on him and... and uh, on on Spider's story or yeah, the his actual story and how person. they would how would they would use it in the in downhill race? Uh, he did a great job with that. Yeah, you know, as he did with the river runs through it. But yeah. look how it fucked up everything. Yeah, I uh, I gave Redford River runs through it. What a book! Yeah, um, but look what it did to the rivers. Oh, I know. I, when I yeah, I know. I mean, it was an accident. He was making a going to make a. A film of my book, Nobody's Angel, and he was up here visiting all the time. He said, "Boy, I'd like to do something around here." And I said, "Well, here's a good book," and he made it. That was it. Uh, I think the last sentence in that book, "I am haunted by water." Yeah, pretty great. Were you ever haunted by stories? Oh, sure. Yeah. How much is is were you haunted by not only the story but the words to make the story? The As words what? The words to make the story. Oh yeah, I've been, I less and less, but I was definitely when I wrote ninety two in the shade, I was definitely word drunk. I mean, and I was a big admirer of uh, those kinds of writers like James Joyce and people who, you know, language was sort of the goal, right? Uh, more than anything else, uh, I've just become a clearer, uh, more a simpler writer as as I've got going through this long career right um and part of that is living in a milieu where if you go on writing in the sort of high art style nobody you know will be able to read your stuff so i think you're impacted a little bit by the mm-hmm. by the people around you you'd like them to be able to see what you're up to and is moby dick the greatest fishing book ever written uh i love moby dick uh uh, it's it's one of those books like uh, Mark Twain's uh, uh, Life on the Mississippi, where it's about fifty percent technical knowledge about something, right? Uh, and that's always appealed to me. Um, it's it's like things we've done. I mean, how, how do you learn how to be a tarpon fisherman? I mean, how do you right? Uh, how do I? How did I learn to be a cutting horse rider? I mean, I, you just have to do it. Uh, or I was a roper for years. How do you do that? I mean, right. you, well, there's a way, you know. You, one step a, at a time. Yeah, one step at a time, and you just have to go through it. Yeah. And and, and it's all about learning. Yeah. And I think where you kind of starve out in in life or in a, in a career uh, is when there's not something out there that you would really like to learn. When you're just plateaued out, I know enough, uh, I, I know what I'm doing. Um, uh, that That's a problem. And as you get older, it's harder to rediscover those kinds of things. And some of them are embedded in difficult things, like the capacity to be here now, to live in the present, to see the things around you. I, I've got a, had a great lesson in all that from Laurie. Um, Laurie is not an intellectual. Uh, she knows everything that's going on around her. And so if you go for a walk, she'll see all sorts of things you failed to notice. Uh, if 
if I go, I was in the Mayaka National Forest with Lori a couple times. We'd be wandering around out there, and it, you, no, no bearings in any direction. You know, she always knew exactly where she was. I'd have to say, "Where's the trailhead?" <laughs> I have no idea where it is. And incidentally, Buffett has that perfect sense of direction. Take him anywhere; he knows where everything is. Right. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the uh, the movie Tarpon. Okay. Which I think that movie really put tarpon fishing on the map for the masses to see how great this fish is, if right. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's right. It and was... and I think it was was it Guy Valdine's vision to produce this movie. Yeah, I I it was absolutely. And his brother-in-law was a great cinematographer, so they had the core talent. Um, and it's in some ways it's a little bit of a self-portrait, you know, of Guy, you know, because uh, he's sort of the star in all the scenes, right? Isn't right. He? And um, I was only part of it in a very minimal way, in that I was writing. I had a uh, wife and child living there. I was trying to lead a kind of a normal life. And right. that was when really when the uproar began, you know, when Harrison and Valdine and others would rent a house and just, uh, so I, I was, I was kind of detached from it at that time. I remember we had a, we had a, uh, party at my house. And I remember Steve Huff was there. He was just a kid really at that time, uh, shy and uh, but a, already a great guide. He was almost instantaneously a great guide. Right. <laughs> we arrived in He's the. He's a key. prodigy. He just knew everything. He was where a to prodigy. Go, how to find him? Yeah. And I remember asking him. I said, you know, he's fishing all the way from Biscayne Bay to the uh, Marquesas, and I said, how do you, how can you keep track of uh, all that country, all the places, and all the tides? And, and he said, well, I don't really fish that much. He said, it's just a little narrow band. He said, I'm only fishing a couple of miles. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think that um, Flip Pallet definitely brought me to, to the saltwater. You mm -hmm. know, as a skier in Aspen growing growing up there on a Sunday morning watching Flip and all the places he was fishing. I have Flip's boat, first boat. Do his you? first middle of I mean, the writing, the cinematography, all those fishing films were, those were shot on 16 millimeter. Um, the movie Tarpon, um, I think you guys, if I'm not mistaken, isn't Yeti uh, reenacting shooting the new Tarpon film? I think you're involved with it. If I'm Yeah, I don't know what, what it is, to be honest with you. They started out, they're going to make a film about me and my life and fishing. And but it involved fishing, and I couldn't fish. This was last this past year. I was supposed to go to Apalachicola with him and shoot down there. So uh, at that point, the center of what he wanted to do didn't exist. All I could do was talk. You know, right. at that point, and I was re rehabbing three different body parts, and uh, and so he started interviewing a lot of you know, Gee and mm -hmm. Carl Hyas, and I think maybe he's gone down to see Gil Drake by now. And I recommended they do that. It would, uh, and he'll be back up here, and we'll do another part of it at that point in time. But yes, he does those little Yeti movies, you know. Um, he's done a lot of them uh, about various things. And right. He's an interesting guy, you know. He was a football player. He had the he was the he was the fastest running back and high school football in the whole state of Texas. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty impressive. Yeah. And then he played at Texas and then he transferred and 
was a converted him into a defensive back at the University of Oregon and uh uh for so from high school on through college all he knew was football so he went out after that he went out to California just laid on the beach he just, just described himself as a recovering football player <laughs> deservingly so yeah you know um but I think that um you know, the world of tarpon fishing will never leave our blood. I mean, you no. just a couple of years ago, you made mention of this big fish you caught. Yeah. You know, tell me about that. You know, at your age and you're hooked, to, you know, you hooked this massive well, fish. Well, in fact, after the, at the end of the day, Tommy Locke said to me, basically, do you realize how lucky you are to do what you just did at 80? And it was, you know, let's face it, there's a big component of luck in the day we had. My my uh, friend, my neighbor Lawrence Hall, caught a fish about a hundred right before that. But to me, uh, I'm glad it happened and stuff. I don't see it as a summit in my life. What I right. do remember vividly about this is that we almost didn't fish because it was so windy and shitty. So we ran all the way down Key West. I mean, from Boca Grande all the way down to Pine Island Sound and then worked our way around the far side of Charlotte Harbor and then we're up by the mouth of the Moyaca and then it was kind of tolerable, you know, the, but it was these swells coming in from the Gulf like this. And how Tommy Locke stayed on this polling platform, I'll never know. But we got back in this little area. There's about four feet of water, crystal clear water, roller, rollers coming in through it. And there were laid up fish suspended in all these waves. Oh, wow. And so I r really remember catching the fish and what a wild jumper was. But when I drift back, what I remember are those suspended fish in those low waves. And I just, How cool. I thought, my God, what a vision. Right. What a vision. You know. It's... Uh... The tar tar the tarpon really changed my life, yeah. you know, in a, in a big way. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. it's like for the last thirty five years I've been chasing tarpon. Yeah. Um, what is it about that fish that the you eat? It's the eat. <laughs> the eat is everything. It is the eat. Yeah. There's nothing like it. Yeah. Um, I was down at the docks at Book Grand, and uh, um, Tommy was there with his client. Uh, young guy and the client was really upset it was january and tommy could find fish anywhere down there at any time of the year right back to uh my friend skip Herman had a huge year year before last in the month of december dead, dead of month of december fish everywhere but this guy said he said tommy found me got a great shot and he said i just took it out of the fish's mouth and i said you know i've done tarpon fish off and on for half a century I said, I do it every year. I said, I I take one out. I said, it's just because we love it so much. It's buck fever. The only way I've gotten myself to stop doing it is I make the fish take the fly, take it away from me instead of me doing anything. Right. I strip until it gets tight. Until I get tight. And that way, if I say, just fucking go to sleep, I've got to get through this moment. <laughs> How many times over the years would you look at your right hand and yell at it? Yeah. Like, stop ripping that out of oh, his face. I know. I did it for like 10 years. Or when the guide says to you, I think that was a trout strike. This is tarpon fishing. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Don't ever do that again. Don't ever do it again. Um, if you don't mind, you know, we've been talking here for quite some time. How did cutting horses come into play? Well, 
Uh, and you're in, you know, their Hall of Fame. Yeah, I did. I got. What does that take to get into their Hall of Fame? Well, winning big events, winning, and right, and of course, I was known for writing about it. So as part of the culture of of the thing, I, it, it happened like this. I mean, I when I had my little ranch, you know, we started riping, roping on my place, and so we bought a bunch of little coriander's coriander steers, and we'd rope every night, and um, uh. To be competitive, we had to practice all the time. Right. And mo- my part, roping partners were all local guys, and and uh, I had a I had a a mare that was quite a good little rope horse. But somebody said this was she used to be a cutting horse, and uh, we bred her one year. She lost her colt, and I took her to a cutting clinic someplace where was a, one of the world champions came up to Montana. And I went and drove out a cow. I didn't know what I was doing. And I dropped my hand and she went, just like that guy. And with it, and, and. Put the brakes on. Huh? When you went like that, put yeah. the brakes and, on. And she run just get down in front of one. And, and it's, everybody says, has the same story. You do it once and you say, that's it. This is what I'm going to do. And it, it's, it's the most addictive thing you can do in sport. Um, and it has to do with the fact that you have this emotional relationship to a horse. They can sense you if you're anxious, you're doing things wrong. You get your weight wrong in your stirrups. You're not pushing off in the stops. You're not watching the cattle. Um, and then there's a kind of an intellectual component in that you get a herd of 30 cows out there and you have to remember which ones have been cut and which ones are good or when they settle the cattle, which ones look wild or stupid. And so you got all these numbers running in your head. And then, and the, so anyway, uh, I just wanted to do it. it I had the same experience everybody else had. It's just addictive. It's completely addictive. And it's, I always tell people riding, riding cutting horses is like basketball. Anybody who can ride a horse can do it at first, just like anybody can shoot a basket at first. But from there to mastery is a very long way, and you'll never quite get there. How great will you compare to all the others in the real world of being a cutter? Well, you know, I was a regional cutter, you know, so if you, as a national cutter, I would go to the area workoffs in Mississippi and different places. Uh, but I won the Montana championship over and over again. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, it went big cuttings in California and Texas. Oh, and how Mississippi. cool. Uh, but there's a whole class of, uh, you know, really, we had an advantage for those of us live up, live up here. And it was true of roping too, is it's the wrong climate to do it. Cause the, the fanatics are at it day and night. 365 days a year. Warmer climates. Yeah, warmer places. So would you ride in, in like arenas, covered arenas in the winter to stay? We would. In uh, but it's a built-in uh, environmental limitation. On it. Right. I remember when I went down to, when I was roping a lot, I went down to a big roping in California. And um, Leo Camarillo was a world champion steer roper at that time. And uh, he was a healer. And uh, so when we roped, if we healed, you'd throw a trap, you know, the 
cow's going like this, you throw a trap in front of the cow, and they trip into it, and you pull up your slack. Okay. You get them, okay? And, um, but Leo Camarillo didn't rope like that. He just watched those feet, and when they're, and they're going a million miles an hour, he roped them out of the air. And, so he would anticipate when when yeah. they were airborne, and he'd he would grab there, them. But it's just like a... That's even harder. Yeah. It's not only harder, but it's a split second. You know, right. you've got a, you're throwing 30 feet of nylon out there to catch to a little target that's in midair. It's going to go away. It's moving. It. So I remember when I got out to that roping, and I saw those really good California ropers, and I thought, we're, we're in delusional <laughs> land here. But I see your eyes come, you know, ablaze with joy when I mention cutting horses and yeah. your life in cutting. Yeah. Tell yeah. me, I think it's your, King is your horse's name, correct? What? Is your horse's name King? That the you one have I have, him? yeah, my, he's, he's, out, he's about 26 years old or something now. He's tell walking me, around. He, he just has the run of the place. He's out in the yard. You'll see him walking around. Tell me about your relationship with him. Well, I had a, I had uh, two horses <clears throat> that I had uh, exceptional personal relationships with. Probably actually the horse, I wonder if I have a picture of him. Anyway, there's a horse called Lucky Bottom 79. We'll call, call him Roni. Uh, and he was, uh, uh, he was a freak. He was, um, I went down, he'd, he'd done very well at the National Fraternity. And he started bucking the owner off. And they turned him out into a big wheat pasture in Kansas. But I remember seeing him at the fraternity. I thought, God, what a great little horse he is. I wanted to find out what had happened to him. So I, they brought him up to uh, Asher, Oklahoma, where there's a kind of a wonderful guy, Ed Bottom, who's a Indian. Uh, and he had a stallion that John Wayne had given to him for helping all around there. But it turned out to be a great breeding horse. And this was one of his colts. Uh, but he was bro broke. He was a cutting horse by the time I saw him. But I went there to to try this horse and I saw him up under a tree, you know, tied with a halter tied up on a branch of a tree and he had a hind leg hind tied up. Uh, like you do when you're going to break a Mustang or something, you know, and you tie up a hind leg and then you get on and then turn the little hind leg loose and let him try to buck you off. So I thought, I wonder what horse that is. I said, they must be just getting ready to break him. And he said, no, that's your horse. <laughs> so... <laughs> And he was, he was really, I think he was just a frightened horse or, a, but he was very hard to be around. I mean, the, when I first had him, you know, I'd keep him in a stall and I'd go in there and write in the, stay in the stall and write with him, you know, and he'd be flattened against the wall, you know. If you I know, Ken, you'd write in yeah. the stall. Yeah. Hanging just out, so hanging out with just him. Just hanging out with him. And he would be just like this, watch you all day long if he had to. If you did something wrong, you'd love to get kicked or get hurt. Um, but he was an unbelievably great horse. Did that did that calm him with your presence? Yeah, he got used to me. And he, I think he just was a timid horse in a way, but he had infinite physical ability. And um, he was smart. You know, if you when shoers loved him because he'd go through this horse, he'd hold it like that until you're finished with it and do the other one. He was just intelligent. And he was, he knew more about... Uh, he knew more about um, 
a cow really than most horses do. He never had a miss, you know, and he was right. he's real low working. I mean, you'd get get off him and your boots would be full of dirt. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, should, I remember I showed him once at uh, at the Astrodome, and uh, it was two go rounds in the finals. He was such a spectacular horse to watch. He was so fast and so slinky. Um, I won the first two go-rounds. There were like 100 horses in each go-round. I won both those go-rounds. And then I came back for the finals and cut two cows. And the second cow, I mean, he just showered. And I trapped it like this. And he had trapped right. And there was bleachers behind me. And people started screaming. And he stopped and turned around, looked in the bleachers. I was out of the cutting. It was unbelievable. And I had to give a lecture the next day or the day, two days later at the University of Florida. And I was like, this, all I could see was this clock. You know, there's four seconds left on the clock when he turned around to look at the crowd. And, and I, I, when I go up there, I was lecturing all these undergraduates sitting around to see what I'd have to say. All I could see was that clock, you know. Just devastated. I was I'm still not over it. Yeah. Um is that similar? I mean, there's so much we can talk about, you know, with your horse. And I know that probably in these competitions, it's got to be like, what, 90% horse, 10% rider? Or is it more 50-50? Uh, I mean, how do you match your skills to something that is that spectacular Yeah, as a rider? Well, it's a little bit like I, was, I said at sort of the top of the paragraph, which is, you can just go and ride one and get the idea. Right. Uh, you know, Gay came out here one time and I put him on that horse and he just loved it. He was, because uh, you get to see this horse, but you have to shape what they're doing all the time. You have to know. Yeah. In other words, I can't think what the skiing analogy would be, but somebody said to you, okay, you're a downhill racer. It's a big steep hill. Why is it you go any faster than I do? I'm going to go down the same damn hill. Right. Why aren't I going down just as fast as you are? Right. And because it's all the micro adjustments from the top to the bottom. Right. And with a cutting horse in the course of a run, there are all these kinds of things. Like if, if you see a horse running into a stop, the cow's taking it hard into a stop, and you think you understand a little bit better about what the horse is, what the cow's doing to your horse, pushing it too hard, and you need to get a little more cautious. Well, you can simply push off the horn a little bit, and he'll take that as a signal. Let's let's be careful here. Wow! So that's the kind yeah. of sense. How long does it take to groom a horse to your skills, and or to groom a a, a great pedigree? Uh, or your skills to a great pedigree. In a co-horse's great pedigree? Yeah. Well, the two best horses that I've ever had, and I understand I'm not a master trainer, and there are a lot of people, even when I was doing it, who were lots better than I was. But I could, I, I was in the game. <clears throat> but the two great horses I've had, Lucky Bottom 79, the one I just told you about, and then King, who was trained by Buster Welch and was a beautifully trained, finished horse. Neither one of those horses were really particularly bred to be cutting horses. Uh, Lucky Bottom's 79's mother was a washed out racehorse. Miss Glimpse was her name. And uh, his sire was an obscure cow horse. Uh, but a good horse, but nothing special. 
And then King was in a feedlot in La Mesa, Texas, and he just wanted to work cattle in the aisles, you know. On his own. Yeah. They're sorting cattle and sure. stuff like that. One tried to run by him. He'd drop it. He's just trapping cattle all the time. So the guy that had him uh, said, maybe he wants to be a cutting horse. And uh, he sent it up to a friend of mine, Tom Merriman, who's a great horseman, very uh, pious, very religious West Texas guy, great cowboy. Uh, and Tom trained him, but then Buster Welch had him after that, and he trained him, uh, really got him finished, and uh, he won a lot of cuttings before I ever got to him. So I went down, and uh, uh, Buster Welch's son asked me if I would uh, be willing to come down to Abilene Christian and give a talk. And so it's kind of not my world, but I went down there, and I met such nice people there, and the writers and stuff on the faculty said they were never uh, never oppressed in any way by the church that ran the place. So I had a nice time down there. And while I was there, I said, whatever happened to King? At that point, he was about five. And they said, well, some uh, there was a couple, kind of a ranchy couple from New Mexico, who had taken in this wealthy guy whose kids didn't like him. And and he was so grateful to them. He financed everything they did. And they so they said, we want you to buy King for us. So King went off to New Mexico. And there was the two cowboy and cowgirl had an amalgamated family, they had like eight kids, and they're always going to basketball games and, you know, teaching meetings. And, things. and King just stood around, learned to crib, just didn't do anything. Uh, so he was down there for about a year. And so I called down there and said, if you all aren't doing anything with it, I'd like to, like to try him. So we brought him up to Buster's place in Rotan, Texas, uh, and, uh, worked him and he was phenomenal. Buster worked him before I did. And I was mind blown. I mean, uh, he's, he's just a phenomenal horse. He's the best probably the best cutting horse I ever rode. He's the best kid's horse I've ever had. He's the kind of horse, when he was four years old, you could put your granddaughter on him and say, be back for lunch. Wow. And the best horse to go rope at a branding. I've ever been around. Except, you you know, you rope something, you better be sitting down because he's, go he's going to the fire. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's just a great horse. He's just a lovable horse. What's it like to ride a horse like that? Oh, it's just like sitting on a lot of power. It's going to be so exciting. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think there is a little bit of an analogy here with tarpon fishing, which you, you know, you do everything right and you hook a big fish and then you, you have this moment of awe. Right. Awe, which is you, you can't believe the power. Uh, and you're going, to, you're going to have to negotiate because you're not going to overpower a tarpon, right. a big tarpon. Right. You'll learn how to yeah. ride that horse, yeah, if you will. Similar to probably a, a, a great bird dog, but you're not riding the bird dog. It's just like riding your own bird dog or a border collie or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, you've never been a big game hunter. You're a bird shooter. Yeah, and I, I did hunt. Uh, you know, I had, did hunt. I, by the way, I saw in the Billings Gazette this morning, some guy, bow hunter, killed it. Did you see that? Yeah, monster, beautiful elk, and somebody fucking stole it. Right out of the... What are people thinking? 
and a lot of bad folks out there. That's so real, sad. A lot of dubbies. Tell me about your relationship. Uh, do you have bird dogs? Yeah, I do. I had a. I lost a, the dog of a lifetime. I've had bird pointers since I was ten years old, uh, and I had a, a phenomenal dog. Uh, and she died last winter mysteriously. Um, she just went downhill suddenly. She wasn't that old, and her, her lungs were totally wiped out. Um, and you know, I, I'll have a hard time getting back into the game after that. The Jinx is a really good dog. Right. Um, that dog was phenomenal. Uh, she was just a little black and white pointer. She had so much prey drive. She just always had you at bird, you know. Um, but there's a thing in Florida. I don't know if you have them down in your part of Florida called buffa, buffo toads. No. I, a, I don't know anything about it. Yeah. They're... they're um, uh, or invader species is incredibly poisonous toad. Oh, okay. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they're so poisonous, their tadpoles are, co- are poisonous. Deadly. Wow. And she may have gotten into one of those. People who were staying in our house this summer said they'd seen them on the place. But uh, they kill dogs. I mean, a dog oh, licks them in there. That's terrible. Yeah. Um, is there anything you'd like to add? I and mean, we've covered a big spectrum here. Yeah, well, we could go on and on. I think you sense I've enjoyed this so much. I'd like to reverse this and, and, uh, and interview you sometime. <laughs> well, that would, it would be awesome. I mean, storytelling is wonderful. I mean, we've had such big moments in our lives that you don't, you don't dream of doing these things as a young mm-hmm. kid. These are experiences that you can't buy and you can't win. Yeah. It's just life. Yeah. And you've had such a big, prolific life. And it's just such an honor to know you and to have your story be told with us. Well, you know, it's great. I mean, it's not, you've had a, a great life. I mean, you've gone from being an iconic skier to being an iconic saltwater fisherman. I mean, that's a, I mean, they don't have tarpon in the snow. I suppose somebody <laughs> was like you. But I mean, you had to go figure it out. Yeah. And then train yourself to meet the needs of being a successful tarpon fisherman. And um, it's this this fetish I have these days, which is you have to keep finding something that you want to learn. And at this point in time, I, I kind of pride myself in being able to learn how to do nothing. How to, I mean, it, it, you know, when you're in your 80s, you have to think, what would you, how do you really wind this game up? And I would like to feel that I was pretty embedded in the natural world, either as an observer or participant. In, in, as in my life, I've had to have a game to play to do that. I've had to fish or I've had to train bird dogs or I've had to ride cutting horses or something like that to really... But now it's getting simpler and simpler. I mean, I test myself and see if I could just sit someplace quietly and take it all in. Is it hard? Yeah, it's somewhat against my nature, but it's like learning one of these Buddhistic skills, which I'm not a Buddhist, but I mean, it takes some discipline to just shut the fuck up. And it's like the Bible says, what are the two rules? I'm not religious, by the way, but the two rules are watch and listen. Those are the two rules. And, um, you know, 
even in the most driven competitive fishing, you have those moments of the day where everything stops and you look around where you are, you see one of those incredible Florida afternoons with the towering thunderheads and the unbelievable light, see bait. Yeah. I think that's what I'm, I'm evolving to, as I mentioned, you know, fishing to me means being centered. Mm-hmm. You know, the tarpon fishing now is becoming more of one um, of enjoyment through watching my son have success with it yeah. in the bow, you know, and being with him and watching his joy, you know, yeah. uh, being more of a witness to greatness mm-hmm. than trying to be that person, you know, trying to achieve all those great things. And in fly fishing here in the West, it's it's about just, like you said, being present, watching and listening yeah. And absorbing mm-hmm. and being okay with silence. Well, you know, in terms of saltwater fishing, one of the things that I can sort of lean on is when I was living and fishing in the Keys, it was not a happening place. The lower Keys was not happening. Everything was up around Isla Morada. And so you either just went on and did it. There were no contests. The only contest was the Miami Metropolitan thing. We'd try to get a fish in there once in a while. <laughs> but otherwise, you were there trying to convert your tide book from Miami Harbor, you know, to wherever you were, and then right. figure the offsets from the front to the back and all those things. But the competition was never part of it. Nobody did it. In fact, most of the people uh, that I knew in those days were opposed to it. Even Le- Lefty Craig was opposed to fishing contests of any kind. Right. Uh, so you had to float around in this sort of zero gravity world of what am I getting out of this? Am I getting any better? There's nobody to tell me. You know, it's just right. me, me against myself. So I, when I'm back down there now, I try to think like that again. Right. And one of the things that in the last few years has changed for me is the snook have gotten so smart. I love to snook fish. They've gotten so smart, you practically can't catch them out of a boat. I mean, they just they just feel that. The hydrological wave. pressure from the boat. For sure. Yeah, and you're not going to catch one with a cast under 80 feet. <laughs> but they get dumb if you'll wade. That's amazing, too, yeah. how successful permit fishermen are wading. Yeah. You know that crazy guy down there that fishes out, uh, out in the contents? Do you know about that guy? He's uh, the kayak? More... Yeah, the kayak guy. Yeah, I've met him before, yeah. What an eccentric guy, right? Yeah. You know, That's I have smart, a fr- though. My friend who had the the uh, psychological clinic in Key West. He retired and he's a woodworker. And uh, that guy I think's done some jail time. And and uh, so this friend of mine would uh, let him come in and work in the workshop with me. He's got a nice workshop. And the tar- the permit guy, we can't remember his name right now, would come in and he's a master carpenter. Did you know that? No. He's an absolute summit cabinet maker. And so he'd come in and he'd work with my old friend that I would, he and my friend and I met in a cat, in a bassinet when we were three months old. And um, we've been friends, fishing wow. friends ever since. So but he'd in there and this guy comes in and works in his workshop. And he said, he seems great. He said, he can do anything. He said, but within a couple of weeks, you want to kill him. <laughs> he said, he's really kind of a pathological kind of a guy. Right. But he catches the shit out of permit. Right. Yeah, he's he's focused. You know, if you dedicate your life to doing something well, eventually you're going to get pretty yeah. good at it. And he goes, I think he's got an old sailboat. He goes out and stays on it out in the contents. And then he fishes with his kayak and he wades. 
Sometimes he'll beat you at the dock with his family album with all these huge permit in it. Come. <laughs> yeah. Come see. Um, what next for you? Well. What are you working on right now? Uh, I just, uh, you know, I've renewed my contract with uh, the New Yorker. and That's pretty much the writing that I do. Um, and uh, the big thing, the big interruption for me was all these surgeries and these rehabs and the PT right. and not, I haven't been able to fish all summer, really. And uh, how has that, I, have you gone into any sort of a depression because of all that? No, not really. Uh, last year, I've always traveled around, fished different places in Montana. Last year, I couldn't do it. I think I had just had my one shoulder done. I can't remember. Maybe the something else. I've had the knee done twice. I broke my leg. I had rehab for that. But I couldn't go very far. So I just fished around here and I fished on the boulder. Didn't go anywhere all summer long. Right. And I just, because I wasn't going anywhere, I was really discovering things around here. Uh, the boulder, these long stretches that I didn't think were particularly, particularly fishy. I found out there were these little divots in the stream bottom and there were fish in those divots. And I thought, boy, when you're boundaries get compressed you there's an advantage in it sometimes you can't say hey well you know i'd like to catch a permit i'm going to go to the seychelles right well overnight in paris we'll just go down <laughs> there and we'll get a permit right right it will get smaller <laughs> yeah but it gets better actually yeah because you learn more about it oh absolutely yeah and so i just you know you say what's next i want to go fishing that's what i want yeah, to do. you want to be healthy again yeah and yeah. i'm pretty much there now but yeah you know you're kind of getting older but <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Oh, you you I, I are would, spectacular in every way. Uh, well, and, so are you. I've enjoyed this. We've got a lot to say to each other. We'll have to keep the yeah. keep the warm in the water over. No, time. absolutely. Well, there it was: the real and limitless life of Tom McGuane. Most of us live in a comfort zone the size of a living room. His story gives us an example of how to challenge your own limitations and live your best life possible. Your imagination and efforts are your only speed traps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon. Just a ride.